You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, woolly and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I made your, uh, I made your dreams come true there. Yeah. Through Wooly. I threw Wooly into the introduction of the show. And honestly, I feel like in several ways, this past weekend in the world of combat sports, a little bit Wooly. Things got somewhat Wooly. Yeah. If, you, if you look at the, at the weekend, I understand you probably had a big combat sports weekend there at the house. We'll talk about that more later on in this episode. But what was the, what was the wooliest thing... That happened to you this weekend? Well, I did sit there and watch Britain Hart declare herself not a person, but rather a feeling. That was and, pretty woolly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that surprises me a little bit about BKFC, but then I get disappointed at myself for still being surprised by stuff like this. Apparently, pretty much any motherfucker can get in the ring at BKFC after a fight has concluded. If you've got yeah. something you'd like to say, uh, a grievance you'd like to address with somebody who just fought, you can kind of get in there and there's a pretty good chance that they might give you the microphone. They might just let you, uh, you know, throw water bottles around back and forth at one another. You can, you can be an active participant just even if you're not one of the two fighters scheduled to compete just then. One would have thought that we had learned our lesson about cage slash ring security as far back as the Strike Force Nashville brawl. Because that was a situation where you probably let too many motherfuckers get it get in the cage. And look what happened. Next thing you know, no more Strike Force on network television. Next thing you know, no more Strike Force. So I'm not saying BKFC is is uh the same kind of product. I'm not saying BKFC is trying to do the same thing that Scotty Cox was trying to do back in the day with Strike Force, but uh I think we all learned you let too many motherfuckers get in the ring. Shit can get woolly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Woolly AF. But then maybe that is something to be said for a venue of a cage rather than a ring. Because a cage, you know, you usually only got two doors. Somebody would have to scale it to get over the top, which is hard to do surreptitiously. A ring, though, it's a lot of space around the perimeter for somebody to slip through the ropes if they are so inclined. That's true. That's true. Didn't Britton Hart say... I'm a fucking feeling. That's true. Yes. And all you guys are going to feel it. Yeah. That was weird. That was extremely woolly. She was really, happened. she was feeling some stuff in that post fight interview and it was all just coming out. You know, it was, it was something to behold. I'll say that. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of feels happening there for Britain Hart. Just a reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But make no mistake, Ben Folks and I are here all week over at the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon page. We're over there dropping not one, not two, but typically three additional podcasts every single week just for the beloved patrons of the CME. That includes Wednesday's live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday. Ben, would you... 
Would you say it's accurate to say things sometimes get woolly on the live chat? I can hardly recall a time when things didn't get at least a little bit woolly. All topics are welcome. Absolutely anything can happen on the live chat. Plus, we got the Friday Power Hour podcast where we typically take a deep dive into the most compelling MMA topic of the week, as well as unleash the most powerful force in all of fight sports. The co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. It rolls off the tongue. It is both exhilarating and scary to behold. But that's not all. For the absolute shit-eating wild persons out there who want to support the podcast at the very highest level, We've got our weekly movie club podcasts. This month, we're bending minds and righting the wrongs of the past as we travail through time travel movie month. Last week, we had a spirited discussion about 1995's 12 Monkeys, and this week, we'll hit up 2012's Looper, as voted on by the beloved patrons of the CME. So not only time travel month, but also sort of a mini Bruce Willis retrospective these these two weeks, Ben. Yeah. I'm still over here thinking about how some studio execs apparently at some point wanted Nicolas Cage for that role in 12 Monkeys. And damn it, I feel like if I'm going to go back and right some wrongs of the past, it would be to travel back in time just to get Nicolas Cage in 12 Monkeys. Because he would have just gone totally weird with it in a way that would have been possibly a disaster, but definitely memorable and entertaining. Do you think you could have had Nicolas Cage opposite Brad Pitt, though? Or would that have been too too much weird for one film? You know what? Maybe it would have destroyed everything about the film industry, ripped a hole in, in the fabric of time itself. But I'm willing to take that risk because it, I think you really – we really kind of messed up on that one. But you know what? I'm, I'm not sad to see us turn around, turn right around and watch Looper because he is really good in that. Although – Everybody, I had never even heard of Primer before it got suggested here. It didn't win the vote, but I ended up watching it this weekend anyway, just out of curiosity. Chad, here's a film that claims to have been made on a budget of $7,000. Wow, okay. That's not much. Yeah. Now, Looper has, I don't know exactly what the budget of Looper was, but I think it was more yeah. than that. I think it was greater Safe than $7,000. Safe to say. You end up with a bigger feeling movie with a lot more stars and fun action shit going on but i'll still tell you primer's worth watching if you're if you like yourself some some sci-fi and you don't mind a movie that is mumbly as all hell to the point where you you probably need subtitles okay that's good to know seven thousand dollars you probably can't even cover bruce willis's weekly lunch budget no you can't even pay to keep his head cleanly shaved for seven thousand dollars so if you want to get down with any and all of that action, be sure to go ahead and join the team over at patreon.com slash co-main event. If you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you buy my newest novel, The Blaze, available wherever fine books are sold, and an exceptional thriller, according to Publishers Weekly. You can go out and grab a copy of The Blaze. If you have read it and you do like it, please go ahead and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads, wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book, so do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze, wherever is best from you. Uh, We got music again this week from our guys Foreign Cash, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from Foreign Cash on the show, you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. Again, that's C-A-C-H-E 
in the word cash. We got three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, it was a tough night for the old guys at Fight Night 184. So what did Alexander Volkov and Corey Sandhagen prove by dispatching Alistair Overeem and Frankie Edgar? And in round number two, Ben spent his Friday night shelling out the bucks to watch BKFC Knuckle Mania. He's got the full debrief for us coming up in round number two. And in round number three, this weekend, UFC 258 kicks off a stretch of three pay-per-view events where six UFC titles will be on the line. So what should you expect first from Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from George Costanza's answering machine. Okay. Believe it or not, George isn't home. He writes, or wait, it writes? I guess it it writes. Yeah. At Paige Van Zandt versus Britton Hart this weekend, the BKFC tail of the tape had, quote, fist size alongside reach and weight as an important attribute. I don't have a question, really. Just putting it out there. Discourse? Uh, Yeah, I did notice that in my brief travail through some of this BKFC footage. And you know what? It sounds a little silly, but in a bare knuckle boxing match, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's irrelevant. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that particular physical trait isn't going to have at least something to do with who who is the better bare knuckle boxer. Yeah, because more so than, you know, if you put two people in boxing gloves that are the same size, then all right. I don't know how much your fist size is really going to matter unless there's a huge disparity. MMA gloves, kind of the same thing. But when you don't even get to wrap your hands, you just go in there with the fist God gave you and a little bit of wrist support that seems mainly to denote the color of the corner you're, you're fighting out of. Yeah, man, it's tough. The I, I could see how that might make a difference. I also think that one of the tough things I don't, Learned a little bit about this when I was writing about the first BKFC event, and I went to that one in Wyoming and talked to a bunch of people who were competing in it, some people who had kind of come from that world to begin with, and other people who were MMA fighters, boxers, whatever, who were just trying it out, taking off the gloves. It's tough to train for a bare-knuckle boxing contest because not too many of your your, your go-to sparring partners are going to want to be like, yeah, man, let's just like take off the gloves and just throw bare-fisted at one another's motherfucking faces. Right. It's you you hurt your hands, as you see in the BKFC fights, a lot more cosmetic damage, cuts and stuff like that opens up. And so it's a hard thing to to practice, and yet a lot of the techniques that you might learn boxing with the big gloves on or even fighting with the MMA gloves on just don't work the same way when you're out there barefisted. I mean, just putting up your guard, you cover up a lot less of your own face just with your your bare fist than you do boxing gloves. Yeah, so fist size could help you out both offensively and defensively if you got giant ham hocks, if you got big old uh, fried turkeys at the end of your hands. Uh, you know, you and I have both spent time around Chris Lieben, who had his his retirement fight this weekend at BKFC, which we will talk about coming up in round number two. But I can attest uh, that that dude has fucking enormous hands, like just as compared to the rest of his body. You see Chris Lieben standing there, and it does, in fact, look like he's got a couple of bricks taped on the end of his arms. And so, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe that's, maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe when people say a guy is, quote-unquote, heavy-handed, maybe they're not just, uh, maybe it's not just a, uh, you know, colorful turn of phrase. Yeah. Maybe it's actually 
Maybe it's actually something to that. Literal more mass in his hands to throw in. Although, on the other hand, if you had small fists, maybe you, you find a way to dart in there inside their defenses. Yeah. Like little sure. needles at the end of your arms. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe that could be an advantage as well. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Jizzy B, who writes, We just had Overeem Volkov, and now on deck we have Blades Lewis and Rosenstrike gone uh, before the grand fucker of them all. And Ganu versus Stipe 2 in March. Oh, and the winner of that gets to lock horns with John Jones. Fuck lightweight and all of the PFL featherweights. Wow, that's that's harsh for the yeah. PFL. Specifically targeting the PFL featherweights here right is Jizzy B. Uh, isn't 265 actually the premier tournament in all of MMA? Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is is totally off base because I think that that this is actually a pretty good point here. If you've got, obviously, Alexander Volkov emerging victorious over the weekend against Alistair Overeem, and then you got Curtis Blades and Derek Lewis coming up, uh, the biggie boy against Cyril Gaon, and then for all the marbles, Big Fran versus Stipe, the rematch coming up in March, and the uh, the talent level and the, uh, the, uh, the depth at heavyweight is such that that all those guys probably are going to end up fighting each other over the title if they win those fights. And then, of course, you got the wild card in John Jones as Jizzy B throws out here. But one thing I would also point out is that I feel like heavyweight right now feels particularly particularly interesting just because it's been kind of stagnant over the last year or two. And so now that we finally feel like we have some forward motion happening and we have some things to look forward to and some big fights coming up, uh, yeah, it does feel pretty, uh, awesome. And it feels pretty urgent to, to like find, find out what happens here in defense of 155 pounds and frankly, featherweights, not just the PFL featherweights. Uh, those divisions keep it that way almost all the time. And True. so the fact that, that right now you've got Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor, maybe doing it again over a vacant title, you know, you've got uh, Michael Chandler, you've got Justin Gaethje, you've got Tony Ferguson, you've got the specter of Nate Diaz. Like, that's just the default setting at 155 pounds. So it's awesome all the time. Heavyweight seems awesome every now and then. But yeah. when it is awesome, it is incredibly awesome. I agree. Yeah, heavyweight is also kind of like a lumbering dinosaur at this point in that old just kind of across the board, tends to be a little older than some of the other divisions. Uh, but also, is, everything is moving quite slowly at heavyweight. I, I agree that you have some big fights coming up, some stuff to really look forward to. But it, the, the pace of anything happening, it's like we feel like we waited a long time to finally get something on the books with Stipe, Francis, and Ganu too. And then it's probably going to be a long wait. For whoever wins that before they go and turn around and face John Jones. Meanwhile, all the other guys in the division are trying to figure out what the hell are we even doing here? If all the, the next few title fights are already spoken for, how do I put myself in a good position and maybe be a guy who's called for a backup or gets something when the dust clears on all this stuff? Everything, the developments all come about pretty slowly. Whereas in some of these other divisions, it's just we have the, – the problem is we just have too many good guys yeah. to even keep track of. Yeah. I mean, you look at uh, Poirier-McGregor, and not only did that fight come together, you know, relatively quickly by, by like, heavyweight standards, certainly, but now we're already talking about the potential of a rematch for the vacant title and the idea that that would happen 
you know, sooner rather than later, that's light speed. That's warp speed as compared to how things go at 265 pounds, where uh, we heard the rumor that John Jones was going to move up seemingly ages ago now when we were children. I feel like when we first found out that John Jones was thinking about giving up the, the light heavyweight title to go up to heavyweight, and we still have no idea as we sit here today what his future might be at the heavyweight division. So you're right, just sort of a lumbering, ponderous heavyweight pace from the big fellas. Kind of reminds me of we do see big action when they do finally get in there. Uh, I remember Jim Shepard wrote a story about Fidel Castro playing baseball in Cuba and one of the Cuban baseball teams having the mantra, the elephant moves slowly, but it crushes. <laughs> okay. Something yeah. to think about. That is. That's that's food for thought right there. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson. Tracy time? Is it Tracy time it's, on the proper? It's Tracy time over here on the proper. Oh, nice. uh, she writes, can we take a moment to appreciate Benil Dariush and all that he is? As evidence, time and time again, he's a pretty amazing fighter, and he just seems like such a great guy. While he didn't make weight for his last fight, he pleaded with the UFC to give his bonus to his opponent. And for this fight, he apologized for his post-fight speech, thinking that maybe he came across wrong and wanted to immediately make amends. In any other division, he'd probably be ranked higher than he is already. But with the embarrassment of riches that is lightweight, he's currently just within the top 15. My hopes after this performance is that he at least moves into the top 10 and starts getting some of the recognition that he deserves. Thoughts on his performance and him as a person. Also, his Wikipedia picture is still one of my favorite favorites just saying uh so benil dariush goes out there gets himself yet another post fight bonus over the weekend for fight of the night against carlos diego fajera uh benil dariush gets the split decision victory 29 28 twice and 28 29 one time against fajera this was a good fight these two guys uh as benil dariush frankly is known to do kind of going straight at each other uh both on the feet and on the ground they were mixing the martial arts out there in this one, Ben. Benil Dariush and Carlos Diego Ferreira, just a real slobber knocker there. The second fight in on the main card from this fight night over the weekend. Yeah, and I, I agree with Tracy here that he gets a little fired up afterwards talking about uh, the rankings and, and getting fights and stuff like that. But then feels like maybe he he didn't, I think as he said in the post-fight press comments, I didn't elaborate properly that he wanted right. to be more specific about it. And... I've heard other people, especially in some of these very crowded divisions, they have this similar complaint. And the matchmakers, I've heard lots of similar complaint where you have these rankings. Everybody wants to fight up the rankings. Nobody wants to fight down the rankings. And yet the math just doesn't work on that. You know, like if we're going to have two ranked guys fight, one of them's got to be ahead of the other one. Somebody's got to fight down the rankings. And as the matchmakers love to say, if you're here to fight, then you're here to fight who I've got. And somebody has to be willing to take that risk. And I can understand how it would be frustrating for a guy like Benil Darius who looks at these people and they, I'm sure, are making this calculation that he says of looking at him like there's a high risk there. He's a really good fighter. He may beat you. And yet kind of a low reward because he doesn't have a huge name. You know, if you had an option to be like, oh, who do I want to fight? Do I want to fight Benil Darius or Nate Diaz? I mean, everybody knows Nate Diaz, man. He'll bring a lot of attention to the fight. It won't be just a, another Saturday night fight night event if you fight Nate Diaz. It'll be a big opportunity for you. It could be a big win. Uh, you turn around, you fight some guy like Benil Dariush. In fact, the heads know, the hardcores know that that's a tough fight and that it really means something to beat him. But it's not going to change your life overnight. Yeah. And I, everybody, especially when you get to this point you if you become a ranked fighter in a really talent rich division in the UFC 
you're trying not to fuck that up. You're, you've gotten to a point where you have sacrificed and put it on the line enough that you want to really make it pay now. You want to really go for something. You, I can see why you're trying to choose each fight to be like, okay, how does this move me forward to my goals in a, a clear, verifiable way? And I could see why a lot of them would look at Benil Darius and say he doesn't do that for it. But it's uh, that is the frustrating part about it is because if, if you're gonna do, if we're gonna have anybody get the opportunity to move around in the rankings, people got to fight. They got to take those risks. Yeah, if you were a top ranked lightweight, Benil Darius is the very last kind of guy you want to fight uh, because he's well rounded, he's aggressive, he might well even if you beat him make make you look bad and drag you into a, a a brawl which is is what he likes to do and oh yeah this unheralded guy who's not going to earn you a big payday might mess around and beat you also cuz he's he's just that good uh he's got 6 wins in a row now in this in this lightweight division he does in fact seem like a genuinely nice person hard not to like Benil Dariush going out there with his salt and pepper hairdo and and just mixing it up and and being a bad motherfucker being being you know just a tough son of a bitch more than anything else uh in these fights but like it is weird to think at 155 pounds you're so deep you got so many guys that you can run off six wins in a row almost all of which over people that we've heard of tough fighters in these recent victories by Benil Dariush and yet not only is he not you know not ranked in the top 10 but like you have to get a couple of conversations removed from the title picture before you even start mentioning this guy, just because there's so many uh, really good fighters at that weight that like, you know, we're, we're talking about Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier and what you're going to do with Michael Chandler and, and Charles Oliveira and all these guys. Uh, you gotta, you gotta turn a couple pages before you even get to Benil Dariush. Whereas like if he's in some other weight class, maybe he does get more recognition quicker and the recognition that frankly he probably deserves as a, uh, as a really tough guy. It is a good Wikipedia photo, though. Yeah, Yeah. no, it is. It is great. Benil Dariush wearing a Benil Dariush t-shirt, making the same face, basically, that the cartoon version of him is making on the t-shirt. Yeah, whoever designed this Benil Dariush t-shirt, they nailed it. They weren't trying to do too much, you know? They they had a vision and they executed. Yeah, yeah. And they, 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 uh, I guess I would say it seems true to life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it went for realism. I dig that. Next question this week comes to us from a grumpy Gen Xer. Oh, so nice. Should be able to be right in our wheelhouse here. Did you send this? Uh, Is that- <laughs> I don't I don't know who all needs to get off my lawn, but sitting through a long music video infomercial featuring Eminem, I wasn't sure if I was swept away into the CME Patreon time travel universe and suddenly it was Y2K again or what? I was 19-ish when Eminem busted out, and don't get me wrong, I love that shit and still will revisit it on some of my rap playlists, but who is in the market for that commercial? Who is, uh, is it me way out of touch with the UFC's core demo or Dana White that's out of touch with the core demo? It's motherfucking 2021. And the kids these days are the kids these days buying a much, much lesser version of the shit I was buying 20 years ago. And also where the fuck did those 20 years go? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we can answer that last one. Yeah. But thanks for a grumpy Gen Xer yeah. for writing in uh, the UFC, man. I, I tell you what, even though, you know, it's coming. Even though you know they're going to slip something in there in between the the co-main and the main, whether it be an advertisement for the next pay-per-view or an advertisement for the government of Abu Dhabi or 
like a five minute Eminem music video with some pro wrestling skit shit right in the middle of it. They're always going to do it. And yet every time it happens, I, I quietly whisper, God damn it to myself every time, even though I should at this point have either made peace with it or known that's when I need to go get my snack fixed for the main event or whatever. But man, we're already paying. We're paying once to watch this stuff. And then all, and you want me to watch an Eminem music video once I'm three hours deep in this thing already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I come from a similar position on it as grumpy Gen X are here and that I have liked me some Eminem in the past. Uh, sure. And yet also when I watched this stuff, I felt like this is kind of sad, man. Like we're, here we go. We got all the corporate forces aligned here to try to put out this new thing. And then you see the new thing and you're like, uh, you're just, you're just kind of making sounds at this point, man. Like you used to have like some real cool shit to say or like real urgent shit to say at least. And now it feels like, well, we're just kind of hanging around doing it. In answer to this question about like who, who is this for? The UFC does love musical acts that were big around the turn of the century. That and is true. We've seen it consistently. When David White's in charge of like booking a party, it sometimes reads like Warp Tour from 2002 or something. It, he he really still loves those certain musical acts, and we're not really updating it too much. But this just felt like okay, we're we're getting together all the 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 company forces here to try to make everybody some money. We're kind of kind of trying to cross promote. Honestly, it kind of felt a little bit like the reverse version of what we were told would happen when Endeavor bought the UFC is here you've got this big Hollywood company with all these Hollywood industry contacts. They're going to make the fighters more famous, get them more exposure by getting them on these talk shows or or using their entertainment industry contacts to, to, you know, we can cut the marketing budget because we can just do it more organically. And we haven't seen a ton of that, but we do see it happening the other way. Where it's like, okay, let's get Eminem in here and use the UFC as like a platform for him to show his thing. I also like how when they're showing him on this like fake sports center kind of thing, the ticker at the bottom, where normally it'll just be a bunch of different sports ticker, is just all UFC news. Mm-hmm. That's how you know it's fake. Because it's just yeah. like UFC 258, UFC 258, like over and over again. And it's like, yeah, I've seen how the ticker goes and it doesn't go like that. Eminem has had an amazing and interesting career arc here. And I... I like I assume you and many of the people listening, I was, I was pretty on board for the first couple albums. Uh, although now that you look back on it, like, I'm not sure I feel great about some of this, some of the stuff he was spitting, but, uh, eventually I had to get to the point with Eminem where I was, I had to confront the terrifying question of whether or not it's possible to be too good at rapping because at some point he crossed a line to where I couldn't even understand what he was saying that he was just like, as you said, making noise with his mouth. And I was like, it sounds like it rhymes. It sounds like every word rhymes, but I have no idea what he's saying. And then now we get to this this latest thing, which uh, it's clearly the post-drug rehab version of Eminem, where I guess, what is it? This is like a remake of Lose Yourself, almost. This is like another inspirational, uh, you know, anthem for the for the kids out there trying to get themselves fired up. And I tell you what, I don't know that I'm ready for a 40-year-old man out there still trying to be Eminem. It's just... Well, it's also a it's, little it's bit... It's a tough look. Like, you're 
you're trying to do this sort of counterculture thing while being the culture. Like you were trying to do this thing where you get Dana White on there so you can tell him his opinion doesn't matter. It's like, oh, Eminem's doing the Eminem thing, giving the middle finger to, to this powerful boss figure. It's kind of like when, you know, the people who are the machine are talking about how much they love Rage Against the Machine. It's like, oh, you're, 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 you're miming the thing of like, oh, fuck these corporate overlords, man. But, but you were using the corporate overlords to get us to watch your damn music video. You, you were pretending to rage against the machine when in fact you are riding the machine all the way to the bank. Yeah. The, uh, the skit there in the middle that you were just referencing where, where Eminem is going to, is going to talk. He's going to really lay Dana White low. Oh yeah. He's talking about how his opinion doesn't matter. All of which is, was filmed in service of a, of a fight that doesn't exist or it's just, I, I don't even, that's, that's, I mean, that's the point where I'm like, what are we even watching? What is even happening where we got to stop the song, which is already pretty long. And we got to do this vignette where Dana White and Eminem are, are on a fake version of sports center talking about a fake fight and then saying rehearsed lines to each other. And I'm sitting there being like, when am I going to get to watch Alistair Overeem and Alexander Volkov? What is happening? It's late here, you guys. <laughs> Talk about some grumpy Gen X or shit. Yeah. No. Yeah. No kidding. Last question this week comes to us from uh, Darius Rucker. Speaking of Gen Xers. Okay. Is it the uh, guy from Hootie and the Blowfish? That would be Hootie. Okay. All right. I thought so. He writes, the fight night seemed like a card full of potential cuts. This fight night seemed like a card full of potential cuts and non-re-signings. Does Michael Johnson exit the UFC with four straight losses? Overeem with his contract ending on a very lackluster loss. Old man Edgar with his recent two and four record. Molly McCann. Discourse if you would. And thanks for being awesome. Now on Friday's Power Hour, Ben, we started to wonder if maybe we had spoken too soon that the UFC had promised to do all of these cuts headed into the end of, of 2020. And then it didn't seem like those cuts had happened. And we were like, maybe the, maybe the people at, at uh, Casa de Jacare are breathing a sigh of relief that they made it through January without getting cut. And then all of a sudden now it seems like some, some cuts are rolling in. We had like a dozen people get cut this past week from the UFC. And I think this is a pertinent question here uh, from one time college rock star, Darius Rucker turned country music singer, uh, I would think that, that, yeah, like now that we've seen these cuts actually start to come down, if you are one of these people who has been with the UFC for a long time, maybe costs the UFC a lot of money and has not been particularly, either is not in the mix or has not been, been running off wins, I would think, yeah, man, I'd be, uh, I'd be getting a little nervous right now, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I, the Overeem one, I was definitely curious about after reading this question, because if you're the UFC, obviously Overeem is not cheap and probably looking like he's neared the end of his usefulness as a top heavyweight. And yet it doesn't seem like heavyweight has been one of the divisions where it's almost cut proof. Not quite. If you can still win a couple here or there, but if you have a name, they're reluctant to let go of you at heavyweight. And yet, I mean, Michael Johnson is another one though, where he's been around for a while. We feel like we've seen what we're going to see from him. Uh, is the UFC ready to let people like that go and realize that somebody else might be out there looking to make use of them? Right. Overeem, I would think, is still a guy that you would want to have around if you're the UFC, despite the fact he just, you know, uh, lost his fight to Alexander Volkov, is clearly kind of diminished in terms of his skills. But there are also, there's other promoters out there 
that would jump on Alistair Overeem as quickly as they possibly could if he were to hit the streets. And even though you look over at Bellator and they talk about how they might not be in the business of signing these UFC castoffs anymore, uh, you know Scott Coker and Alistair Overeem have a previous relationship. You know that uh, bolstering that Bellator heavyweight division would be something they would be interested in. And bringing in a guy who's a, a name like Alistair Overeem would probably be a no-brainer if they could afford him. I think this dude is making seven hundred and fifty grand uh, per UFC fight or something about that, at least in terms of reported income. So, like, he's expensive, but I would also think Alistair Overeem might still be worth it for you if you're the UFC. Man, if you let him go, I'm just saying... You seen the fist size on Alistair Overeem? Yeah, he could yeah. be out there bare knuckle box, box bare knuckle boxing before you know it. Talking about uh, guys, I am not a person. I am a feeling, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're all going to feel it. That's yeah. my Alistair Overeem impression. Uh, that's that was pretty good. Thanks. I don't know if the outcome of this uh, uh, Alexander Volkov fight would be a uh, a cautionary tale for about what might happen to you if you go to bare knuckle boxing, but uh, it, it could happen all the same. Any case, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, a couple of fan favorites, a couple of old dogs in the main and co-main event of this fight night event from over the weekend in Alistair Overeem and Frankie Edgar, and they both pretty much had tough outings. Let's start in the main event, and then we can talk about the co-main here in a few minutes. We had talked a lot recently around, in and around the career of Alistair Overeem about how uh, he had sort of become a surprising fan favorite and wily old veteran at this stage of his career going out there against people like Augusto Sakai and Walt Harris. And, you know, for almost 25 full minutes, guys like Jarzino Rosenstrike and looking like, you know, a a very different version of Alistair Overeem than the guy who was arguably the the number one heavyweight in in all the world back in 2010. And that he is kind of, uh, had ditched the much of the overwhelming power game and the sort of like, uh, uh, explosive offense of the old school Alistair Overeem and now was out there uh, doing it on wit and guile and experience alone and maybe against all odds had to, had racked up a 4-1 and one record in his last five fights. All of that appeared to fall away against Alexander Volkov over the weekend. Uh, Volkov is able to keep it on the feet throughout two and a half rounds here and really just picks Alistair Overeem apart slowly but surely. Overeem doesn't have a ton of answers. It appeared he didn't have a ton of, of offense in this fight and then eventually gets the nose broken. And by the time he gets knocked down, uh, we don't even need any strikes on the ground. As soon as he kind of collapses on the mat, the referee has seen enough. Uh, what did you see out there both from Alistair Overeem, but also the Vic, the victor Alexander Volkov in this fight? Yeah. I mean, the, the way this one ended was especially painful to watch. It seemed because you could tell, by the time I think you got through that first round, it just looked like Volkov 
has too much that he is bringing here, and Overeem doesn't have any answers for it. And when he got his nose busted, he, he said afterwards that he wasn't able to really recover from that. And by the time Volkov dropped him, you know, he throws out that kind of right hand and then a left to the jaw and spun him around and dropped him down on all fours. And Volkov was walking up as if to finish it, but seemed so reluctantly. Like, he yeah. was a little bit sorry to have to do this to Alistair Overeem. Good stoppage, by the way, by referee Jason Herzog. Because that was one where you could tell just the way Overeem went down and his how slow he was to sort of react to the looming threat over his shoulder. It was going to get bad. It was going to get really yeah. bad right there. And Jason Herzog got in there right at the perfect moment and stopped that one. And, yeah, I mean, it's... It's kind of impressive how far Alistair Overeem has gotten in recent years on that veteran guile. Like you talk yeah. about experience, all that stuff has sort of been able to mask and a little bit make up for what he's lost in speed and athletic ability. Just what he's lost to time, basically, uh, in, inevitably, as everybody is going to. And when I was writing about it, it was just like, you know, he's got, he's got a lot of knowledge in his head these days. He, he still wants to do it. He still, you get the sense Alistair Overeem still loves the, the training and the fighting as much as ever, but he's 40. Like he yeah. just, the body does not react the same and you could see it sort of all show itself right here on this one night. And then also though, you hear him afterwards, he's still saying Alistair Overeem stuff. It seem it does not seem like he's coming out of this one being like, you know what? This is the, this showed me that I probably need to hang it up. He, He's going to be slow to arrive at that conclusion, it seems. Yeah, I, I gasped a little bit when I saw him come out for round two, just because we had gone to commercial break in between rounds, didn't really get to see him in his corner much. And then when you saw how much damage he was wearing already when he comes out for round two, just the crimson mask, uh, it was you could see how ugly it was getting. And for Alexander Volkov, I think you, you, you saw how dangerous he can be when a guy is willing to play his game a little bit here, he didn't feel like he had to worry about the takedown against Alistair Overeem. And uh, I don't know exactly what Overeem's game plan was here, but he just uh, seemed like he wanted to counter, I guess, off Alexander Volkov's aggression. But like uh, uh, Volkov was just able to be really, really efficient and go out there and split the guard and pour on uh, damage when he needed to find holes in the in the kind of like turtle defensive of, of Alistair Overeem and, and pick him apart. And so uh it was it was a little bit of a sad performance to watch for me because it was it was it's like one of those things. I guess you know it's coming, just like the Eminem video, but like you know the end is coming for for Alistair Overeem and yet uh we thought maybe he could soldier on a while longer and as you said it seems like he wants to soldier on a while longer. But this is the first performance I can remember in a little while where watching it I was like man how long can Alistair Overeem actually keep doing it? Because it was fairly academic for Alexander Volkov to to chop down that tree in about seven minutes of fighting time in this bout. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you look at it, it is kind of amazing that he's able been able to stay at the level he has for as long as he has. Like that Walt Harris fight last year, it seemed like Alistair Overeem was in trouble early on, but that was some veteran savvy just to stay calm and get through it and then turn the tables on it and get a win there. And you see him do that, and it does make you wonder, man, how long could he conceivably keep doing this? And then you run into, like, you know, six foot seven buzzsaw Alexander Volkov, and you realize, like, yeah, that it's nice to be able to have that in your back pocket to make up for some of what you've lost physically, but it's not a, a, a magic potion you're still going to get in there and find out sometimes that you're a 40-year-old fighter and there are limits on what you can do with that. Yeah. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about the co-main here. Corey Sandhagen seemed to even make himself sad with this flying knee KO of Frankie Edgar just 28 seconds into the first round. Uh, kind of came out of nowhere, really. Uh, barely even got this one started. Like I said, less than, than half a minute into this fight. Corey Sandhagen now just one loss in his last 10 fights, and he's got these back-to-back stoppages of Marlon Moraes and now Frankie Edgar. Uh, so he would appear to be in something approaching the driver's seat for number one contender status for whoever emerges from the Peter Yan, Aljamain Sterling bantamweight title fight. But at the same time, like, like Corey Sandhagen, who is another one of these fighters who just, at least from, from what we're able to see of him on television, seems like a, a likable person, uh, in his post-fight interviews, like, yeah, it's a good, great win, but that's Frankie Edgar out there. I don't want to see that happen to him really. So like it was, he seemed to be, he was saying what we were thinking, I guess, was Corey Sandhagen after this fight. Now I was thinking about that too. Uh, his comments to say like, you know, I don't want to see that happen. Basically the, the, the best he could come up with, like the most celebratory thing he could come up with there was better him than me. Yeah. And I wondered, is this the best you can hope for as an aging figure in the sport is that hopefully if you stay around long enough to have to start taking these bad knockout losses to much younger up and coming fighters is the best case scenario that everybody likes you well enough that they hate to see it. Even the guy who knocked you out. Yeah. Like they're not needing you. Like they're not, they're not rejoicing in your crushing defeat. Everybody's kind of going awe instead of yay. Like is is that the best you can hope for in MMA? I guess so. And this was an ugly one and obviously yeah. an early knockout of the year candidate, even though we're just two months into 2021 here. Uh, but to see Frankie Edgar go down like a ton of bricks in, in the cage is is a worrying moment, to say the least. And yet, just like Overeem, he's out here uh, somewhat defiant, I guess, with his a statement that came out, I believe, today on his Instagram, basically saying like he called MMA a cruel bitch and was like, I got knocked out but I'm not panicking over it. And I'll see you guys next time, which will be soon. And I don't know, man, like uh, Frankie Edgar is a guy that most of the people in this sport have been able to, to come together and, and agree that we all like him and the stuff that he did as lightweight champion was amazing. And the fact that he seems to have overachieved for years in this sport has been amazing. And like, you don't, you don't want to see anything too bad happen to the guy. So it's hard to see him get KO'd like this. And obviously like a sobering moment for, for what happens next for a guy who's just uh, two and four in his last six fights. Yeah. And again, another one where I feel like after something like this happens, we're all watching the fighter's social media afterwards. Right. Like, yeah. Trying to figure like, okay, is this going to be it? Is he going to say it? Like, is he going to give some inclination that he's at least thinking about it? And then the one, the, 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 version you get from frankie edgar is uh i don't even remember what happened uh sometimes this the fight game be like that sucks yeah. anyway on to the next one and you're going heavy sigh okay yeah all right let's go ahead and do are you fucking kidding me and then we will move on to round number two ben what's your are you fucking kidding me this week Chad, I would like to direct your attention to a story i read today on bloody elbow by our guy john nash the big homie John Nash over there. Here's the headline. One championship finances losses balloon to $229 million, $99 million in one year alone. Are you fucking kidding me? I think you love to talk about how Conor McGregor's camp keeps doing the thing about talking about a fight like we didn't actually see it. 
one championship likes to do the thing of talking about the way their business is going as if nobody has any other conflicting information. Because they keep telling you that they're just playing to massive audiences and doing incredibly well. And then it seems like every time we get one of these reports where somebody's like, hey, how are they actually doing in terms of how much money they're spending and how much money they're making? And you realize it's kind of going the exact opposite of that way. Are you fucking kidding me? Also, fucking kidding me. how do you get the opportunity to lose hundreds of millions of dollars over many years? Because I, I feel like I could do that. I feel like that's a job I could do. And yeah. I might even have a better time doing it than they're having. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a lot of losses. Yeah, that's I a, could do that. Those are big numbers. I could lose tons of money, man. Come on, give me a chance. Yeah, you could. I have all, all faith in you that you could lose tons of money, man. How about this? I'm with you on this. Just give me a million dollars to fuck around with, and let's see what happens. Let's see if if where you, we end up. If you need a reference mm-hmm. as to whether or not you are capable of losing a ton of money, you, you, I, I'll, I'll be a reference, man. Just put me down on your resume. Thank you. I appreciate that. Ben, I know it was a big combat sports weekend for you, what with BKFC and the UFC, and then, of course, the Super Bowl on Sunday. So I don't know if you saw this, but did you see what the big homie Jose Canseco had going? <laughs> I I heard tell about it, yeah. Apparently, he was out here trying to box a an intern from Barstool Sports that we're going to refer to even in the story here on uh, MMA Fighting, on the MMA Fighting Newswire. We're just going to call him Billy Football. Okay. That's the guy that... that uh, Jose Canseco was going to fight. Somehow, a guy by the name of Billy Football comes out of this bout looking like the more reputable half. As Jose Canseco goes down in 10 seconds, he's accused of taking a dive. And then Dave Portnoy, the uh, president of Barstool Sports, who was putting this on, uh, comes out and puts on a tweet that basically says, yeah, we think Jose Canseco took a dive. He says, so here's how Jose Canseco got paid last night. $50,000 guarantee. He got 50000 more if he won, but he also had a revenue share. If we broke our record for pay-per-view buys, we shattered it. Get ready to puke. Jose made over $1 million for five seconds last night. I don't feel bad for him anymore. Uh, I guess, are you fucking kidding me? All the way around here. First of all, for Jose Canseco <laughs> potentially taking a dive in a boxing match against somebody's intern. And second of all, Barstool Sports, which is an organization I frankly don't know that much about, except they don't seem very cool, uh, for even putting it on. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Uh, once I find out, like, if you're basically telling me that Jose Canseco may have gone in there and played Barstool Sports yeah, to the tune of a million dollars, um, it's like, are you, are you going to put me in a position where I have to cheer for Jose Canseco? <laughs> Because <laughs> I don't like that position. I don't like that. Also, if I'm going to fight an intern that is just first name and then sport, I don't know if Billy Football is the intern I want. Like, Yeah, you, you'd rather have Tommy Cricket. Ricky Badminton. Okay. Yeah, can, I get, can I get five rounds with Ricky Badminton? I, I think I like my chances there. Yeah. Okay. In any case, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. So, Chad, there I am of a Friday evening. I've, uh, you know, 
got the place to myself. I got got my snacks set up. I figure I'm having some real soul searching about whether I'm gonna watch this bare knuckle FC event. Because on one hand, Chris Lieben says it's a retirement fight. Haven't watched a bare knuckle FC event all the way through in a while. Thinking maybe it's a good thing. On the other hand, forty dollars. That's your pay-per-view price for this one. Then I go and I go into my little app of streaming fights, and I realize somehow, because of past events I've bought, maybe having to do with the Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr. event I bought through there, I have some kind of credits on here. And then I'm going, well, brother, you just took all the guesswork out of this equation. Let's cue that that boy up right now, get my frozen pizza on, sit there and watch some Bare Knuckle FC, and I had a good time. You know, yeah. the Bare Knuckle FC is going to give you a certain kind of event, but once you're used to the sort of crushing corporate sameness of the UFC at this point, seeing a little bit of a messy, bloody, sloppy product like BKFC definitely has its appeal. It's not something I want to do every weekend, not something I even want to do probably more than three times a year at most. But every once in a while... You get me in the door with Chris Lieben, tell me, you know, Paige Van Zandt, somebody I, I at least have a familiarity with, is going to fight in the main event. Plus, we're going to get somebody out here to sing the national anthem, and we're going to watch on her face as she loses confidence halfway through. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. By the time Britton Hart declares herself a fucking feeling and not a person, I'm going, yeah, I am entertained. I've, I've, yeah. I regret nothing about the way I spent my time and my credits. See, you anticipated my first question here because I was going to ask you if you felt like you got your $40 worth, but now that I know you were able to slide up in here with a free credit because you are such a known commodity as a person who will watch terrible fighting yeah. events, mm-hmm. whatever algorithm deep in the internet l- labels people as such has got you figured out and they're not on wrong. record. They're not no, wrong. They, they've got you pegged. And so they they threw you this credit. And now you were able to watch essentially guilt-free, at least as that pertains to your own financial circumstances. What about the overall athletic competitions that are going on here? Do you find yourself feeling any more uh, sketchy, I guess, than you do just watching a normal MMA event? Well, yes and no. Because a lot of these fights don't go super long. I mean, there are some good, well-matched competitive fights in there. And that are fun to watch. And, but the, on the undercard, there's also just like one dude just going to go in there and beat the shit out of another dude. And you're, you know, you're just going to have to sit through that. That's just going to be part of the deal that you get yourself into. But it's also, I mean, like the top three fights are, are going to be fairly good fights. They're going to be people who are actually pretty close to each other and a fight that means something for the where they stand and their careers and stuff like that. The Chris Lieben, Quentin Henry one, I don't know anything about Quentin Henry when I showed up to watch this one. And it for a second there, Chris Lieben hits him in the eye and Quentin Henry is talking like as if he's been poked in the eye. And we get a, a stop, like a stoppage, uh, kind of a replay review, it seems. We're talking about what to do, what's going to happen next. And all the only feeling I had was, please don't let this end in some kind of weird non-decisive way because you know what's going to happen next. Chris Lieben is definitely going to fight again if that happens. And I just wanted to see this end in some kind of fashion where I had reason to hope that Chris Lieben would be able to stick to his own retirement plans. And I feel like that's not even entirely within his control. 
You know, you I get the sense he really would like to stick to it. He would like to say, okay, that was it. But then they, they're able to restart the fight. He took a hard one on the jaw here at one point and just didn't even blink. Came right back with that big left hand. That's when you know, okay, you're in trouble against Chris Levin at that point. Um, the interesting one that I thought was going to be like uh, one that people were going to be paying attention to as far as trying to tell which way the wind is blowing is how Paige Van Zandt did. And, because yeah. she's obviously being used as the the big draw to get people in. And BKFC, I think, is kind of savvy about who it goes after and how it tries to use these people to be like, all right, there's a section of the audience that you can get in the door with Paige Van Zandt in the main event who are largely going to be giving this a try for the first time. And that maybe if they like what they see, you can make them into fans and, and return customers down the road. And Paige Van Zandt goes in there and loses a pretty clear decision to Britton Hart. And I saw a bunch of people talking about afterwards about, like, it, it, does this mean this was a bad idea for Paige Van Zandt? That this whole thing was a regrettable choice that she should have stuck with MMA or whatever. But then I thought about her talking about how much money, how much more money she was going to make. What'd she say? she say 10 times? 10 times. Again, I feel like that's hyperbole. I feel like maybe she's exaggerating a little bit, but still, uh, maybe for a fighter like Paige Van Zandt, it does make sense to be in an organization where you have a little bit more flexibility on, with your revenue streams and things like that. But, you know, it's not like she went in there and got embarrassed or got outclassed. She got beat in a fight. Maybe she has some stuff to learn. Like, there were times, especially when you'd see the way she was fighting in the clinch, and you're like, you understand it doesn't really work like that here. Like... If you're not in there throwing punches in the clinch, then you're not really, you're not going to stay there for very long and it's not going to work out very well for you. Because maybe there's a learning curve that has to happen for there. But I could see how other fighters who maybe would be in a similar position where they can bring a little value and bring some names would look at how Paige Van Zandt did in that and went like, all right, maybe that's not a completely crazy idea for a next step in my career at some point. We talked on Friday during the power hour about Lieben, who everyone knows uh, is a, a fighter who's near and dear to the co-main event podcast's heart. And he has obviously been through a lot in his MMA career. And when you talked to him for The Athletic last week, he was a little bit trepidatious about whether or not to even dye his hair red for this fight. Because as he said, he didn't know if he was going to be able to let the crippler out of a box for one night and then put him back in in order to go back to his normal life where, where Lieben is now a, a sober 40 year old dad with a, with a kid and a wife. He did end up doing it and it ended about as well for him as could be expected here at, at bare knuckle FC. What percent of you are you willing to say is satisfied that, that this is Chris Lieben's retirement fight? Or do we see him again six months from now beating up another guy who looks like uh, Booger from Revenge of the Nerds <laughs> in uh, in the circular ring of Bare Knuckle FC? I mean, Booger from Revenge of the Nerds, okay. Don't fight Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. That one's That's going to be a tough one. Is that who I meant? Ogre? No. Is I, Ogre the guy that Quentin Henry looks like? I don't know. I think it's Ogre. I think I meant to say Ogre. Okay. Ogre's the big one. That's the that's the yeah. one guy from Revenge of the Nerds you really don't want to fight. Well, that's kind of what Quentin Henry looked like. Well, I think a lot is going to depend on will people leave Chris Lieben alone? Will they let him retire? Because when I asked him about his decision to take this one, he... Because I watched that video that he made. We even discussed it. I remember like last spring where he was... He said something to the effect of, 
that he wanted to focus on his career as a judge and a referee and focus yeah. on his gym and coaching and all that stuff. And so he was retiring after the decision loss to Dakota Cochran and that he seemed kind of at peace with it then. And then when I asked him, why did you come back for one more after that? He said something to the effect of, ah, oh, the Bare Knuckle FC guys kind of got in my ear and the pandemic shut down all my other stuff. Like the, it really had an effect on how much you could work from your gym in California and as a referee and judge in California, all that sort of stuff. And so they got in my ear and said, how about another one? And I went, oh, okay. And so I guess my plea would be for everybody not to do that to him this time. Because if so you we're... keep offering Chris Lieben a chance to step outside, he's going to take you up on it eventually. I think yeah. we know that about him. But if you, if you stop offering, then maybe we got a chance. If he hears the music... He's going to dance, yeah. is what you're telling me. I, I believe and, he could stop chasing it. I believe he could stop going actively in search of more fights. But if you say, hey, Chris, would you like to make another 50 grand or whatever it is, show up and fight some guy, he's going to be like, well, okay, what's one more? Sure, why not? Yeah. So what we're counting on here is the uh, the good graces of the guys who run Bare Knuckle FC. That's <laughs> what you're telling me? We're counting on the Bare Knuckle boxing promoters to do the right thing. Make the right choice. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel great about the future here. What about the future of Paige Van Zant, though? After watching this this fight that she was in, uh, do you feel like she could... I don't even know if I want to say find a home in bare-knuckle boxing that I would wish that on someone, but like, uh, do you think... Should, does she do this again? Does she make a... a you know, a, a more or less regular thing out of making these bare knuckle appearances, even if she's making 10 times as much as she was making in the UFC. What what do you feel like Paige Van Zant's future is in this uh, in this kind of sport? I think she definitely does it again. I think that they'll find somebody else to fight and that it just makes too much financial sense for everybody to try to get her back in there again. And again, I think that maybe a little it's a little bit of a learning curve because you could see some of her habits as a fighter coming from MMA just weren't that helpful in a bare knuckle boxing fight that you, you, especially this is really its own sport. It's not boxing. It's not MMA. It's these like short rounds uh, where you can kind of fight in the clinch, but only if you get busy right away and you're, you, you're doing this sort of thing that is really difficult to know how to train for. And so I could understand like if you get in there the first time and maybe you learn just how much you have yet to figure out about the way bare knuckle boxing works. But I would imagine that they will find her somebody else to fight there. Um, and that I, it's a weird thing how even she acknowledged it. Everybody seemed to acknowledge that part of the appeal of why you're even watching to see this fight is, is Paige Van Zandt going to go in there and get her pretty face marked up? Because you get a lot of faces marked up. And she was saying beforehand, she's like, yeah, faces heal. Like, I'm not that worried about it. And so I still think that there's going to be this appeal where you're going, like, somebody else is going to show up and be like, I'm going to rearrange Paige Van Zandt's face for her. And that's going to get a certain amount of people in the door, just kind of automatically. But I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, Paige Van Zandt has surprised a lot of people with her way to remain enduringly relevant, even if she's not winning them all. And I wouldn't be surprised that continues in Bare Knuckle FC. But will Ben folks be watching? That's the question. You know, it's I'm going to need a break. I'm going to need a break <laughs> from this before I for my appetite for it returns. So don't turn around in three weeks and try to sell me a Bare Knuckle FC card. Come talk to me in the summertime. I'll say that. Okay. Maybe Sounds mid-summer. like you're taking a very Chris Lieben style approach to whether or not you will watch again. Maybe midsummer. We'll check on what the credit situation is and uh, okay. we'll see what we can do. 
Let's get into it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, we are back from Fight Island, UFC 258 this Saturday. We'll emanate from the Apex Arena down there in Las Vegas, Nevada. A co or a main event fight that we've been waiting for for a while. Kamara Usman to defend the welterweight title against Gilbert Burns. These two guys were originally supposed to do it in July of last year at UFC 251, but it got put off uh, a couple of times here. Once for COVID-19. Uh, complications and once just because uh, there were some some quote-unquote undisclosed injuries to the champion made it so that he couldn't make the date at UFC 256 but now knock on wood unless we get some breaking news this week it seems like we're finally going to get this 170 pound fight between Kamaru Usman and Gilbert Burns and this one does kick off as I said at the top of the show a series where you're going to have six UFC titles on the line over the course of three pay-per-views Let's start here, I guess, with this welterweight title fight to begin with. Kamaru Usman uh, said to go out and then look to get his third consecutive successful title defense. What do you make of this matchup? What do you make of Gilbert Burns uh, as a contender here, a guy who obviously came up from lightweight uh, in 2019 and, and has won three fights in a row at welterweight? Do you think that he is a, a true threat here to uh, what has been a fairly dominant reign for Kamaru Usman? I'd call him a live dog in this one. I, I understand. I don't disagree with anyone who says Kamaru Usman ought to win this. If he shows up and does his usual Kamaru Usman stuff, that style-wise and just the overwhelming pace and pressure that he sets on people, I think he should be able to beat Gilbert Burns. But Gilbert Burns is a good fighter, man. Yeah. And especially, you know, maybe having some time for everybody to sort of reset and come into this thing fresh is better for both sides because it seemed like we were trying to rush some stuff together. And like maybe the welterweight division suffered a little bit from us having to have this long pause while we try to make this fight happen. But I do think it's probably better for both those fighters to go in there and, and you know, better to get a clearer picture of who the better fighter is at 170. It's just hard for me to see. Like when I'm trying to think of what kind of fighter you have to be to beat Kamaru Usman at this point, it's hard for me to see a whole lot of those out there, you know, yeah. like it's just hard to, to imagine a whole lot of people like what they bring that is really going to, unless you just catch him with something big, which anybody can do. And it, but then it, that's not a plan you want to hinge your whole title hopes on is that maybe he'll fuck up and I'll punch him in the face really hard. Right. Kamara Usman is an interesting figure in the landscape of this sport. He hasn't lost since 2013, basically the, the version of Kamaru Usman that we have seen in the UFC since his debut has not lost. I don't, I, I, probably everyone would agree that Kamaru Usman was not the same dude back in May of 2013 when he lost a fight at CFA 11 in Coral Gables, Florida. Uh, he's got a lot of decisions on this record, obviously, but at the same time, in his last two appearances at, at UFC 245 against Colby Covington and then at UFC 251 against Jorge Masvidal, he's had both some feuds some high profile feuds and high profile opponents and yet you don't get the sense that Kamaru Usman is a big star in the landscape of mixed martial arts even though he probably should be if things were based solely on ability 
and uh, his his willingness to fight and the the job that he's done dominating this weight class. I don't know if you can say something's missing here, but I also just don't feel like uh, he has ascended to one of these, you know, one of the guys that you could point to as one of the up and coming young stars of the UFC. And I, I, I can't really tell you why that is other than the fact that, uh, that maybe during that stretch when he was putting together all those, all those decisions, somebody, somebody decided that he wasn't the most marketable guy out there, but I don't even know if that's, that's right. Well, I mean, do you think that there's something he could do to change that? Because fighting style wise, he doesn't bring the sort of thing that lends itself to highlights, you know? Right. Like, but it would be hard, don't you think? Like, that's who he is. That's what his right. athletic background is. That's the kind of fighter he is. It's hard to get 18 fights into your professional career and be the champion and then be like, okay, well, now I need to make a play for marketability. Yeah, and why would you when obviously what you're doing is extremely successful? I I, I don't know. I guess you just have to not be too concerned with that if you're Kamaru Usman. Because I do think, like, once once people see enough of him... I, I think that they get into the idea of like, okay, who who who's next? Who could match up well with Kamaru Usman? Let's, let's see him tested by different people. Part of the problem, though, is that and some of it is just a consequence of the way the UFC works at this point. But it's like you'll see him show up for a title fight, and then he seems like he immediately fades into the background. And you don't yeah. see him, hear him, think about him anymore. And then he shows back up for another title fight, but it's like, uh, we're in the middle of a big, busy stretch right now, so you're just kind of another name on the schedule at this point. And especially, when you look at this pay-per-view overall, even if you compare the main card here with the main card that you saw on a free fight night event last week, you know, you got the title fight, you got Kamar Usman there at the top, but he's not getting a whole lot of help on the undercard to help him sell this thing. You know, yeah. this is not a high octane pay per view, especially if you're if you're somebody who is looking around to how you're going to spend your personal MMA pay per view budget. Maybe even spent forty bucks on Bare Knuckle FC. Maybe had some credits. Who knows? But you're looking at it and you see this one, and then you see the next pay per view is absolutely insanely stacked. Yeah, it might be just like mm, let's put the credit card back in the wallet for now and hold on for the next one, and nobody could blame you for that. Right, and that's that's why I asked the question about Kamara Usman's place in the sport because I, I feel like he deserves better than than what he's getting, and it seems like UFC 258 is destined to kind of feel as, as though it was sandwiched in between a Conor McGregor fight and then that triple bill of title fights at UFC 259 that's headlined by uh, Israel Adesanya moving up to to light heavyweight, and Israel Adesanya, by the way, is a guy who clearly has ascended to the level of perhaps being the brightest young star in the UFC while also being the champion, seemingly doing what Kamaru Usman either hasn't been afforded the opportunity or hasn't been able to do. And then, of course, coming up right after that is UFC 260, where you're going to get Miocic versus Nganu, the rematch, as well as Alexander Volkanovsky defending the featherweight title against Brian Ortega. So you just start to look at how things are, are going to play out during the first, what is it? It's going to be like the first uh, quarter of the year, I guess, by the time we get UFC 260 in the books, and it feels destined that UFC 258 will be the one that is forgotten, unless somebody goes out there and does does something uh, spectacular, spectacular enough that uh, that we will mark it on our calendar, circle it, and remember it when when these other things seem just seem like brighter lights. Frankly, you're saying that maybe a few weeks from now, what really stands out is we go, man, 
that Kelvin Gastelum Ian Heinisch fight on the main card of UFC 258 is the pinnacle of the sport. Doesn't get any better than that. You'll be talking about it after uh, Kamara Usman does something so spectacular that Habib Nurmagomedov decides to come out of retirement and move up and wait, right? Okay. Since he's he's sitting around hanging on everybody's every move here, trying to see who's the most spectacular. It, and then uh, that's what's going to entice him to break his word to his mom, come back out here and fight. Honestly, again. if you could, if you asked me to make a fight that would be athletically one of the most interesting and high level and like sort of fascinating matchups, but that would be to the general public and uh, on terms of like pay per view sales and everything, one of the weakest performers, Kamara Usman yes. versus Khabib Nurmagomedov might be it. It, it, it would exist yeah. right at It'd that be fascinating. Nexus. Yeah. It would be fascinating. We would have to have it at the Kumite warehouse <laughs> on the, uh, on the weird stage where one half is where the two sides are, are elevated in the middle is like a little, an angle. The runway is what they call it in blood sport. That's where we would have to have that fight. And you'd hear the little ding and their, their names would pop up on the thing. You have to get a long ass one for Khabib's name, but get them both up. Yes, there. you would. Those, those two guys standing up there behind the sign, Changing the, changing the 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 signs would be they'd be earning their money. Yeah, that night mm-hmm. for sure. All right, let's do. Uh, unless there's anything else you wanted to say about UFC 258. No, I've said all I have to say. All right, let's uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, people who get wild on Wednesdays with us will remember me on the live chat last week talking about this story about how two of the Kansas City Chiefs were unsure they were going to even be able to play in the Super Bowl because they had gotten their hair cut by a barber who had tested positive for, for COVID-19. And just sort of the the really high-stakes restrictions being placed on this while we're trying to play the damn Super Bowl as normal during a pandemic. We go through all that. And then, when you're actually watching the game, some dude manages to get on the field and run around. Some dude not in a football uniform, not on either one of the teams. And I'm not going to call him a streaker because, as Vince Mancini points out, it's insulting to actual streakers who get out there butt naked to call a guy who's in, like, a shorts and a bodysuit kind of thing a streaker. He has not, he's not earned that. I'm just saying, though, we go through all this stuff to make sure we're living in COVID-19 exposure in the teams and we're keeping these really tightly sort of observed quarantine bubbles going on and a guy can still get on the field and run around like go from the 50 yard line to the goal line at the damn Super Bowl. I'm just saying it seems like maybe there were some, some gaping holes in the net here. We had to keep this virus out. I'm just saying. Yeah. Just saying. Wow. Uh, some different approaches going on between the two teams mask wise. Also, I noticed most of the chiefs were masked up and then you got Tom Brady out there. Wandering around the sidelines, looking like Dana White, no mask. Tom Brady's a forty-something-year-old man in Florida, dude. You think he's going to take the coronavirus seriously? That'd be just not in keeping with the demo. It doesn't seem like they make masks that are big enough to fit on the faces of NFL head coaches, though. <laughs> like Andy Reid was wearing a mask designed for a horse. <laughs> oh, uh, come on. And then Bruce Arians is over there just looking uncomfortable as all hell. He had like a child size mask stretched over his enormous visage. Uh, just looking just looking like he was in pain the whole time. You know, we got to get some bigger masks for these NFL coaches. I actually had an incident not too long ago here where I keep 
some child masks and usually a mask for myself in my in the console of my car when I had to run into a gas station and realized I didn't have one of my masks had to put on one of the, I was like oh, how bad could it be put on one of the child size masks I looked ridiculous I looked like a fucking absurd person it probably looked like Bruce Arians yeah just running around the store well, Ben this week I'm just saying his palms are sweaty knees weak arms are heavy there's vomit on his sweater already Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop bombs. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud he opens his mouth, but the words, they won't come out. He's choking. How? Everybody's joking now. The clock runs out. Time's up. Over. Blow. I'm just saying. That's what you're just saying? You know, back in the days when I was a, a local sports writer... There was a probably like a two-year stretch where they played lose yourself before every fucking high school basketball game that I ever went to. Every time they would play lose yourself. So it was their version of the UFC's techno remix of Hotel California? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was like once you've been to two or three UFCs and you realize they're just playing the same shit, putting on the same CD just, yeah. up there in the, uh, in the sound booth. Push and play on the iPod. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday for the live chat. Hashtag wild on Wednesday. Then the uh, movie club on Thursday. We'll be talking about Looper. And back again on Friday for the power hour looking ahead to UFC 258 and Kamara Usman versus Gilbert Burns. As for right now, though, thanks for joining us. But we are done. We are through. We are out. You trying to tell me you didn't enjoy my dramatic reading of, of Lose Yourself? I, I wish I had sh- been a little more prepared. Should I go on? Can you? Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes rabbit. He choked. He's so mad, but he won't give up that easy. No, he won't have it. He knows his whole back's to these ropes. It don't matter. He's dope.